favorite color. Welcome to episode three of the LGBT Tech Podcast. I'm Russell Hay from Seattle, Washington. I'm Emma Humphreys in San Jose, California. Uh, I'm Martin Fecky. I'm a software developer for ThoughtWorks. I am in Perth, Australia. And I am Ada from Vancouver, Canada, and I am a UX designer. Great. So this episode is going to be about what we learned in 2015 and what we're planning to do in 2016. Well, I'd be interested in maybe asking a question of Ada, uh, you know, because we've had some brief brief chats uh, online in the lead up to you joining us on the podcast. And you were uh, telling me a little bit about uh, how you were learning uh, things in tech uh, as part of a move from a different sort of industry. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you've learned in doing that. Yeah, maybe um, a little bit of a background about me. So my background is actually in industrial design. And I have recently taken an online course um, to study user experience design and user interface design. And on the side, I've been learning to code um, like just basic stuff like HTML5, CSS3, and um, starting to learn JavaScript. So um, the transition has been pretty good because I have a background in design. And so the user experience design is quite it's a kind of a natural to me because I've been doing UX work within industrial design, making you know physical products anyways. So yeah, but now I am so glad that I found a Slack group because it seems like I am learning a lot faster um, because of all the help that uh, you guys are providing. And I could ask questions and get answers really, really quickly without finding the answers myself um, anywhere else. I mean, yeah, I'm just so happy to, to be here. Everyone is so supportive. That's really great to hear. So from those things that you were um, describing that you've learned, is there anything uh, that you've found particularly interesting from a, from a tech perspective? In a tech perspective, well, I guess it's the change from designing physical products um, to designing more digital products. Like that's kind of the main change in terms of the, like the platform that I'm designing in. But like, I feel like it's much more interesting in the work that I do now because um, I feel more attached to the work. Whereas before, I don't know, it's just a different feeling, I guess. Like I got interested in coding. So that's kind of why um, I felt like there's more room to learn because it's a language. Whereas in industrial design, it was all like the engineering side was all about uh, mechanical stuff and I just felt like that was not as interesting as learning a computer language. So, yeah. So I feel smarter now. (laughs) One of the interesting things that I have learned is that the more you learn about coding, the less smart you feel over time. (laughs) Really? (laughs) That is so very, very true. So I have a question for for Ada. Okay. You come from a a background in industrial design and making things, and we're now starting to enter the age where everything has an internet address and everything talks on the net. And so we're going to have, you know, a picture where we're going to have tiny JavaScript stacks running Node or something like that on every gadget or thing that you have in the house. Mm-hmm. How does, so how does your background in industrial design, how, how does that influence, like, so it's promising to work on? Or what sorts of questions that you want to ask about? Uh, 
Well, that's a good question. Well, for one, I feel like I first off, I think I'm really lucky to have the background that I have because it gives me the advantage of knowing how the um, the digital experience could adapt to the physical product. So it's much more of a holistic design experience. Um, so I feel like it is kind of a, um, I feel like now it's much easier to design things just because I have both sides. Uh, I, I've tried both sides. So now that uh, anything that is trying to connect, like doing the internet of, of things, um, I could easily understand what they're trying to solve or um, achieve. Oh, that's great. I, I, I think that's how Design backgrounds, not having a design background is what you can style as a developer in the past. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's frustrating not to feel like you can express the, 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 the design and everything you can easily make your code it mm-hmm. to keep the ground. Like yeah, and I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of resources out there for learning how to code, right? We love to teach people how to code. There is so few resources available on the internet to learn how to design physical things. Like that's one of the things that I'm struggling with right now is like I like to build um, both physical and and not physical and digital. Um, and the things that I'm running into, the problems that I'm running into is like, I don't know how to design the thing that I have in my head because I don't know how to get that from my head into something that can actually physically be it's something that i think is coming along um like there's this whole sort of like maker movement that seems to be growing um and with the advent of uh you know much more sophisticated 3d printers and arduinos and all these little things that you can you can make things it's almost like this renaissance of of creativity uh, and I wonder if that's sort of the thing that will grow the most uh, over the next few years. And we'll see, you know, people pumping out these custom designed products and things, small batches of, of unique and interesting and hard to find things. Uh, yeah, it's kind of exciting. Definitely. Yeah, I've actually uh, used, I've done 3D printing for a lot in Mumbai. Oh, that's my corgi. I've done a lot of 3D printing in the past uh, projects I've done in um, industrial design. So uh, it, it's quite interesting, but it costs a lot to 3D print. Because <laughs> you have to factor in how many times it, like the mistakes and like um, you have to use support material and, and the parts don't always come out right. You might break something because it's too fragile. So you gotta, it, yeah, it's, takes a lot of time to do 3D printing, uh, to do it correctly. So that's um, something makers would have to really think about. But yeah, I'm kind of past the phase of 3D printing now. <laughs> it seems like there's some um, newer or, or less common technologies in 3D printing that are going to really change and influence some of the things that you were talking about, like um, you know, moving away from the sort of plastic injection style into... Uh, these uh, lasers center in where you can, you know, almost use any kind of material uh, as long as it's powdered and these things build out of it and build quickly. Um, but like anything, um, you know, it starts off expensive. It starts off difficult. Uh, and as you get more mines on it, then, you know, it can 
become much easier over time. Yeah, definitely. So uh, when we when we brought up this subject, I I did a little bit of thinking, kind of splitting the things that I learned into kind of like four different categories. Um, one of the things that I really um, really focused on uh, in 2015 uh, was how can I be a better ally and better supporter of of underrepresented groups. Um, you know, I am part of an underrepresented group like we all are. Um, but you know, I'm a GIS white male. Um, so I'm like playing on easy mode. Um, it's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, and so I wanted to figure out how can I be a better ally? How can I, um, help people that need more help than I need. Um, and so I, I concentrated and learned that amplification is probably the best thing that I can do, um, is to amplify the voices of the people that need that amplification. And so that's what I've been striving for um, in, well, I started um, in early 2015 and I think I did an okay job, um, definitely have a long way to go, um, but it was it was a learning process. I learned a lot of, both about myself and about uh, the struggles that people um, go through that I just never thought of because again, I'm playing on easy mode. Um, and so that was like the big kind of social thing for me this year was concentrating on that. Um, as far as technology goes, I, uh, in 2015, it was really like, I, I am finally on a product development team. I have never actually developed a product before in my entire career. Um, I've always been a tools developer um, or internal processes, internal systems developer, which technically I guess I'm delivering a product, but like this is something that like our company sells and people buy it and people use it and people give us feedback on it, which which is kind of an interesting experience for me. Um, and so that was something that I've learned is how to deal with that whole thing. Um, and then uh, from my creative outlet or my creative side, um, I learned how to let go of things. Um, this year was about realizing the things that no longer give me joy doing. And so accepting the fact that I could let those go and no longer identify with them and just let it all out. Um, and so that was actually a really good uh, experience for me too, because I've gone through a couple of different um, times in my life where I've had to let go, out, not out of choice, but out of necessity. Um, and uh, this was um, this year I came to terms with the fact that letting go is actually okay. Uh, even, you know, if it's, you know, hobbies that I used to enjoy or people that I used to be friends with and just realizing that people come and go and things come and go and being okay with that. Um, so those, those are kind of my three, was that three or four? Anyway, I can't count. It's late. Maybe that's a learning for 2016. Is how to count. It's something I've been, you know, I've struggling with for my entire life. I can't count. I know it. Um, but yeah, so, um, those were my big takeaways, um, when I started thinking about the things that I actually learned, um, this year or last year. L letting go is, um, it's a really interesting process. Um, and I wonder, um, you know, if you wanted to sort of share how you've sort of felt going through that process of, of, you know, something that you have tried to let go of? Sure. Um, so uh, there were, I tend to strongly identify with my hobbies. Um, I used to be a photographer. Um, that is actually the thing that I gave up this year. I realized that I was getting zero joy out of photography anymore. And so I just kind of came to terms with that and started getting rid of my photography equipment, giving it to friends who I know could use it 
or who were um, in need of it. Um, and so uh, that was kind of a, that was just, that was actually the realization was it's okay for me to not do this. Previously, a couple of years ago, I injured my shoulder and I had to give up something that I absolutely still to this day, love doing. And I actually, the way that I dealt with the fact that I had to stop doing that was I wrote a eulogy for my identity uh, associated with that hobby. Um, and it was, I, I got a lot of feedback because I actually posted it on my, on my blog, um, a eulogy for, uh, for my circus life. And it was... Um, I had so many people reach out to me and just be completely touched by what I said. And that was an interesting experience. It was really difficult. Like I, that was a really, like I went through pretty much all of the stages of grieving um, through that process. So in terms of lessons from last year, um, there's several. And I want to go back about giving up things. I had, I, 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 I had a self-righteous hatred of Facebook. I am still not a gamer platform, but I met some people who work at Facebook this year, and they put, a, they put faces to that organization. Even though I don't like the business model, I really got an appreciation for the sorts of work that they're trying to do. And they're trying to do some really important work around memes. And I'm going to talk about memes more because that, that's one of my big things. Uh, so that was, that was an inter interesting experience. And then letting myself be open to experiences like saying, okay, let's play with this platform. Let's see what this means. What does it mean to, to run a page in Facebook? And I'm learning from that. And what is it like to organize events in Facebook? And learning from you know, learning from that, and it's still like you say, hey, I am a champion of the open web, and I believe in the open web, and I think Facebook, want, you know, I think people at Facebook want to work for the open web. I think Facebook is stuck in this whole thing and saying, well, our business model makes us work against the open web, and other big Silicon Valley companies have that problem, and you know, that's one reason why I'm now on Zillow, uh, but. That's so that was that was one lesson that I was surprised to learn. The lesson that was I didn't realize the depth of it, and I knew I was going to learn that uh, over last year was how dreadfully important how how important it is to be able to use one's name. I had to wait five months in Santa Clara County to change my name to my actual name. And during that period of, you know, basically, you know, being Emma in public, at work, everywhere, and then these awkward moments when you have to produce a credit card to do something, or you have to go to your doctor, or you have to deal with a government agency. See, or, or even dealing with aspects of your employment. And it just basically, it causes anxiety. It causes you to, you know, I can't leave the house unless I have this much money on me because I know that, you know, I don't want to use my credit card because I'm going to be up in the city and it's just going to be really awkward and weird. Weird if I have to pull out a credit card that has the wrong name on it. Uh, on it and these things. So in April when I got my when I got my name change, that was like, oh my God, this is such a relief. 
So, um, and that certainly, that, that was certainly a big enough learning that it caused me to make some changes in my career. Um, I'm still not getting paid to do this work, but I'm still trying to do this work. Um, the third thing I learned from the general aspect is I think more and more people in tech are starting to understand that we've got to have it. And we're doing a really bad job of it. I was fortunate enough this year to go to the XOXO Festival in Portland that Andy Bio and Andy McMillan run. And nearly every speaker was talking about empathy and how we need to build on it and how we need to start having that. And the beginning of this year, uh, year Anil Dash, who is also one of the speakers, at uh, XOXO, published a piece I think is really great uh, called Towards Humane Tech. And I think it's published on his blog, and I think he also published it on Medium. And talking about, you know, from that standpoint, his opening, you know, his opening statement is, if you make technology or work in the tech industry, I have good news for you. We won. Now we actually have to behave like humans. So those are, those are the three, three lessons that I picked up. For 2016, I'm trying to figure out how to build influence because I'm no longer in coding. And in order for me to be successful at my job, which is basically improving how we deal with bugs, um, and my passion, which is, and, you know, which is improving how we deal with names, I have to advocate. You know, I have to be able to advocate. So that's my big challenge for me is learning how to advocate. Because it's really easy to stand on the sidelines and go, Facebook sucks. It does all these terrible things for privacy and it's ad driven and blah, blah, blah. And that doesn't get bored. And you still have to be able to do that. And you, know, you, still, have to move, you still have to move forward. You still have to demonstrate your passions, but you've got to be able to argue in a way that people follow you. Uh, volume on that and I'm not directly addressing like I'm, the things I'm doing are not going to directly deal with Facebook it's basically internal it's basically hey I need to get everybody in this organization marching this, in this direction with how we deal with bugs and how we prioritize bugs and how we observe and you know, make sure that bugs don't go unobserved so that we don't have to do point releases to fix bugs that we miss so anyhow that's that's my that yeah, that, that sort of um, uh, leadership qualities, those leadership skills that you describe in there in terms of um, building influence. Um, one of the um, best things anybody ever taught me uh, when I was doing my leadership work in healthcare was that if a good leader, you know, you can look at all of these definitions of leadership and uh, all these strategies and techniques and all that kind of stuff. But a good leader is somebody who people choose to follow. Uh, it, it's not somebody who, uh, you know, has some kind of authority, you know, and, and, and drives people to do things because they have to. You know, when you build that influence, when you build that relationship and people choose to follow the things that you do, uh, then, you know, we get so much more out of people then. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, if you think that, is that something that just we don't do a good job of teaching people, regardless of whether they're in tech or healthcare or other fields? 
I think it's um, a super important um, skill set and having good leadership uh, is one of the things that, um, you know, makes or breaks organizations and teams. Uh, and and uh, another thing that we sort of learned was that, you know, we wanted to address uh, attrition rates in staff and people moving on. And, you know, what we found is that generally speaking, people leave managers, not organizations. You know, people will stick around a lot longer, uh, even if it's not their sort of most enthusiastic area of work, if they work for a good leader, a good manager. Uh, if they work for somebody that's poor at that, um, then it's much more likely that they'll leave. In terms of, uh, you know, how do we teach that? That's really challenging um, because it, it's it's not a skill set that is just like a set of techniques. Uh, it's, uh, it's a skill set that is about self-exploration, about reflection, um, about being challenged on aspects of your behavior and personality that you may not even want to hear about. Uh, and there aren't that many people around who have the skills to bring somebody along on that journey. Uh, so the, the pool of people that you tap into that can teach those leadership skills and can be that mentor, be that coach, be that guide, um, I, I think it's a very difficult thing to work on. Yeah, I agree on the uh, the whole trying to build a following, especially, um, and be influential to them. It's, it's quite hard to build that following. But if you have a really good, um, I guess, how would I say it? I guess if you... If you have a really strong um, point that you can easily get across to everyone that's really clear, then it's much easier to have the following. I mean, um, yeah, I follow some of some, I would, I'm not sure if I would consider them as leaders, but um, some people like, uh, have you, have you guys heard of Tim Ferriss? So he's kind of like a life hacker kind of guy. I don't like, I don't follow him for everything, but um, for a while I was really into, um, his ways of life, like learning things and um, like be open to a lot of different experiences and that kind of stuff. And like, I was influenced by him and, um, and yeah, the way he was, he got me to uh, follow his stuff was constant, constantly putting content out and speaking directly to the audience. So I feel like maybe, um, yeah, to build a following, you really have to always be out there, maybe like more conferences and just mentoring more people. Yeah. So that's, um, probably more um, specific in terms of having a following as a, as a presence. And I think what I was talking about was more in the abstract sense or in a workplace sense. So, you know, having uh, a person that you report to um, leading and having other people follow them uh, actually is, is, is an area where people uh, through their influence, influence as leaders, have people follow them to do things that given the choice, they would choose not to do. Uh, that Because, you know, getting somebody to come along with things that they agree with you about uh, is not that challenging. But influencing people and building the relationship where you can have that conversation and they can say, look, I actually don't agree with that direction, but I'm prepared to, you know, follow you on this because, you know, I respect you, you know, I can see where you're coming from, you know, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's much more challenging than building um, a following where, you know, that's, there's the echo chamber of people agreeing with you and the things that you've got to say. 
So, Martin, you and you and I both work at companies that are very distributed, and I, I think influence in terms of things like blogging and conferences, like Anna was talking about, if you're a manager and your direct reports don't sit with you, that they sit at, you know, at offices or, or at client sites around the world, or even working from home offices, then being able to reduce that stuff, you know, having that presence, whether it's being uh, you know, be, being on IRC and being available, or logging on a regular basis, or you know, or doing these sorts of communication things. I think that can be a part of it. And again, as we're trying to get, as I've seen more and more organizations, with few exceptions, going towards a distributed model. Um, that that is uh, it, it is an intersection attack. And I've been through leadership and influence programs, and we don't talk about those things in leadership and influence programs, and it's something that we should probably start thinking about. I'd be curious, like my, com my company has, uh, has a leadership uh, training program, and I haven't gotten a chance to look at the curricula of it. I, I, I would hope that they would tune things towards the fact that it's a distributed organization. Yeah, I think that's where presence uh, is a word that you used there is super, super important. Uh, and I would describe presence in that sense as, you know, you, you have this team, they may be distributed. What what do you know about those people? You know, how often do you touch base with them? Uh, and being available, as you've described on IRC, is fantastic. Uh, but the next level up from that is actually reaching out to those people on a regular basis. You know, not not necessarily with a task, but hey, how are you going? You know, how, how's your day? You know, how's you know knowing something about people's lives uh, that that extends outside that work environment without being intrusive. Uh, you know, demonstrates that you care about people, um, and and again, that builds influence. It builds confidence. It it builds that sense of togetherness, and that requires empathy because now you're talking about people in various cultures from various political and religious backgrounds or lack of religious backgrounds. And now you've got to be able to you know, demonstrate that. You do have to demonstrate to, you know, if you have a direct report, who's going to be out for six weeks because they're, you know, uh, or, you know, for, for a time because they're having top surgery or bottom surgery, uh, surgery. You have to figure out how do I talk about this thing with them in, in a non salacious manner? Yeah, just to, to just to acknowledge, you have a big thing happening in your life, and I want you to be okay. Yeah, I think those conversations uh, are much simpler when you have a pre-existing relationship. You know, if you've spent the time uh, building the 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 base level relationship, then having that kind of much more intense conversation, uh, much more important conversation. Uh, becomes much easier. You know, you, you're starting from a good place. Uh, you know, if you if you tried to have that kind of conversation or make uh, that sort of compassionate approach to somebody that you didn't know very well, uh, you know, that, that can frequently be poorly received. Um, but, you know, when it's somebody that you know has spent some time building a relationship that has some level of care for you, then, you know, it, it is not, as you said, salacious. It's, you know, I genuinely care about you. It's funny how um, 
uh, you mentioned um, knowing someone better first before actually going in deeper, talking with them about your other problems. It's what's funny is that uh, ever since I've been on the Slack group. I felt like I belonged so much that I didn't even、um, care about not knowing people enough before actually, you know, talking to them about my feelings and everything. And of course,、uh, having that shared background, and for, for our audience, all of us belong to a Slack for people who identify on the GLBT. Uh, and broader spectrum,、hmm. and it has been this fascinating community for us. So I, I, I forget how I, I forget how much we're talking. You know, we it, it's like our it, it, it's it's like the shared environment that, that we carry、uh, carry with us. It's like this little Docker environment that we have that, that we have, and, and we can all go back to and find sustenance. Assessments.、Uh, I think it's one of the great things that everybody's learned here is that hey, having community available on your phone, on your desktop—that's an incredible thing. Yeah, definitely.、Uh, and having a sense of belonging、uh, is is something that is so、uh, positive and therapeutic to almost everyone.、Uh, you know, it's, it's it's one of those central、uh, human needs is the the feeling of of, of belonging. Um, yeah, and it, it's not all just—it's not very easy. There are a dedicated group of volunteers on the Slack who do a lot of work on community.、Um, yeah, I wonder if that、um, segues a little bit into、um, uh, some of the learnings that I've had this year. Maybe I could talk about them. Um, so,、uh, as as people who've heard me talk before know, I moved into tech from a different industry, and I've I've been in tech professionally for、uh, coming up for eighteen months now.、Uh, and one of the huge learnings for me、uh, was that there is a place for me, and I do belong here.、Um, So I'm not sure how many people have heard of the term imposter syndrome,、um, but for those that haven't,、um, it's a situation that's often linked to self-esteem, wherein、uh, a person feels that they are not as good as their peers, that that they have somehow managed to、uh, blag their way into a position, into a role, and that at any moment、uh, some other people are going to find out that they're actually not as good. Uh, as thought they were,、uh, and that they're going to be exposed as some form of an imposter,、uh, and it's often described as a sort of opposite of the Dunning Kruger effect. You know, where, where、um, uh, in particular, very inexperienced people perceive themselves as having a higher level of skill than they do. So you know that's the thing that causes、uh, young drivers to have disproportionate numbers of accidents and those kinds of things.、Uh, whereas with imposter syndrome,、uh, it's frequently you know you continue to believe that you are not competent,、uh, despite evidence to the contrary. You know, despite visible, demonstrable, provable things that you have done that show that you are competent. Um, and I、uh, gave a talk at our、um, team event for ThoughtWorks, so it was very early on in the time that I joined ThoughtWorks, and was still, you know, desperately sort of thrashing around with, you know, have I made the right choice? Do I belong here? Do I really know what I'm doing? Am I actually adding value? You know, I'm working for these clients. 
Um, and then I chose to give a talk on imposter syndrome uh, at this team event, uh, and it was very, very well attended. Uh, and, and during this talk, you know, I shared some stories of, of situations when I was in my previous career where I, you know, had a huge amount of skill. I did plenty of experience and knowledge, and I moved into another role in that area, and it absolutely uh, shook me to my core because uh, it was slightly outside the area that I was an expert in. Um, and it played havoc with my self-esteem. You know, every day I was anxious, I was worrying, I was having uh, all these doubts and it was a very unpleasant period uh, and I shared some quite personal stories with with the team at ThoughtWorks as a result of that in the context of this journey about imposter syndrome and how you know we other people uh, so you know when we see uh, the work of other people what we see is frequently the finished product we don't see the hundreds thousands tens of thousands of mistakes that have been made on the way to that end product uh, and there's this tendency to look at that and, and neglect to recognize the work that's gone into that and to perceive other people as more skilled as more competent as you know more deserving uh, than ourselves the end result of giving this talk was that uh, I have had so many people in that organization, you know, stood at the end of that talk and was like, oh, my God, like you just described how I feel every day. You know, I work in this company with awesome people and I spend all of this time thinking, how am I here? Like these other people are just so good. They're so competent. And here I am. I, I, I don't belong. Um and so many emails from people afterwards just saying, you know, thanks for giving that talk. It was immensely therapeutic for me to give that talk. Um, and it was wonderful to hear uh, that other people uh, felt the same way. Uh, and, and I think it gave permission to lots of people to talk about that experience. You know, one thing that I definitely learning now is if you are concerned that you are not performing as you're expected. Look at your bug tracker. Look at bugs that have been touched by people who you respect and, you know, and consider to be you know, your peers or people who you want to emulate. And you'll see that they make mistakes. Not mistakes, but they'll just go down. I think that this bug is in this component. No, it's not in this component. It's in this module. No, it's not. Wait a minute. It's in this class. No, wait. Hold on. And it's humbling. And the cool thing that you learn from that is that the person doesn't go, oh, God, I feel like a shit idiot. Oh, no. They feel like going, oh, okay, hold on. Let me know. Wait. Okay. There. Do that. So go out and do that. This is a thing Liz Henry taught me a long time ago is that we, like you said, we do a really terrible job of documenting and documenting where things go on. And the only place that we do that in technology is bug trackers and, uh, and after-action reports and DevOps. Jobs. Those are the places where we, you know, where we do talk about those things. Things. National Transportation Safety Board reports. You know, but the rest of the culture we do not talk about our failures. And and if you're feeling bad, like I said, go look at your bug tracker, tra uh, tracker, and you will learn many things. Oh. Yeah. Um. So th that's a really um, practical strategy for dealing with um, imposter syndrome. Um. 
some of the other tips that that I give people is is to share. So you know, the more that you share, as you know, if you're feeling confident, or you're feeling good, or you're feeling nervous, share that with your team. Like the more you say, you know, especially for um, an organization like ours where we're consultants, we're going into different places, you know, the more we talk to each other and say, hey, oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit nervous about using technology X. I'm feeling a bit worried about environment Y. You know, that gives permission to other people in that team who may be less confident uh, about bringing those things up. It gives them permission to share. Uh, the other thing uh, that's really important for helping somebody who's experienced imposter syndrome is to acknowledge that that's how they feel and to not pat them on the head and say, oh, you're fine, don't worry about it, uh, but to listen, to, to hear how they're feeling and to genuinely try to understand that. Don't tell them everything's going to be okay. Just listen, you know. Um, uh, Ada, talking you know, from an experience, you know, from from the experience, I, I think it's more difficult as women in technology to say I'm scared. It, it, that that's that's what strikes me. And what strategies do we have? Can, can we use to get around that? That because you know what one is you know, we can't work for we can't all work for awesome hundred percent queer. Uh, we're uh, in non-majority teams, so what do we do when we're in a room full of guys and say, "Hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not feeling confident about this," without undermining oneself? This also brings back memories about when I was an industrial designer, because most people on my team, and also when I was also in school, they were guys, <laughs> uh, guys who would be really excited about going to the wood shop and metal shop, and you know, doing that kind of stuff, and. Um, as a girl, it, 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 I had imposter syndrome a lot back then. I still have it, but um, more so back then than now. Um, and I feel like like the strategy that I tried um, was to fake it till you make it. And it helped me get around, um, but it was mostly to understand myself, like have self-awareness, like make sure you know where you're standing and be okay with it. Um, because, you know, experience, you can build it and you will be better and, um, not everyone's perfect. So yeah, I feel like it just takes time until you get on par, like equal level to, um, the others. But in this case, I guess this is male and female. So, um, for 2015, um, well, it's actually quite a year for me because it's a huge transition um, from industrial design to UX design and also my grandfather having Alzheimer's. So um, one main thing that I learned this last year is to understand that you can't control things externally around you. That's beyond your control. But you can, what you can control is what's within yourself. So your mindset, how you think towards the situation. Um, this has really, really helped me to learn how to control, you know, my thoughts um, towards, you know, to different changing situations, um, like my transition from a different design field and also the like coping with the changes that my grandfather was uh, going through with Alzheimer's. Um, and actually because of the Alzheimer's that my grandpa have, that inspired me to work my first uh, app project. I developed an iOS, I designed an iOS app for Alzheimer's caregivers. And so um, that's something that I've been working on for the past few months 
And so far, it has been pretty good in terms of like learning. And also, it's something that's really impactful. It's not like a hypothetical design project. So um, I learned a lot from that. And another thing that I learned is plans don't really go as planned. <laughs> I usually do a year plan for like the next like new year. And I would jot down for every month what I want to achieve, like a couple of things. But so far, nothing ever goes planned. Like things change. And so I've learned to just um, accept, um, you know, what just go with the flow, I guess. I never knew that I would start learning to code. <laughs> and so far, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, and just learning not to be scared of change. Another funny thing is also when I, the first experience I had when, uh, with code, I, ha I turned on the, um, the terminal. Oh my God, Git and command line. For someone who has not done code before, I was doing this tutorial and I had no idea what I was doing. That scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, so, but that, that's like the main thing I learned. Just don't be scared and just do it um, because you don't know what's going to come out of it and you learn as you, you get more and more experience. Um, and this kind of ties back to the imposter syndrome again. It's the experience and the time you'll get through the difficulties. It's, it's not gonna, the bad times won't stay forever. That's something to really remember. Um, yeah. And for 2016, um, I'm actually going to try to become more open and meet more people in the LGBTQ community because I actually don't really have many friends who are in the community um, in Vancouver. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to the uh, Lesbian to Tech Summit in San Francisco next month. So I'm really excited about that, like to learn to, to learn from other role models and just, just like see what it's like because I've never been around so many um, LGBTQ people in tech specifically. I've been to pride parades, but it's not it's not the same when everyone is in tech. You, you have the same mindset. You, you, you're all interested in the same thing. Um, and also uh, this year, another goal is to learn to work with developers. I'm doing a, my first hackathon next month as well. And yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> first time working with developers. Be gentle with them. Yeah. But also don't put up with any crap from them. <laughs> Well, what's funny is that it's, it's um, since I, I can't contribute code yet, too much pressure, too much pressure. <laughs> Another thing to think about is, I, I am I'm a hackathon skeptic. But that's another that that's another show, and I, I'd love to hear. Um, I would. I, there was a conversation that that Sarah Whitley was talking about earlier today about who's a, who's also a member of, of this podcast, and I think she was expressing some skepticism around uh, around hackathons. And I've had to judge hackathons, and I primarily come out of those things feeling really sorry for everybody who's been working in not sleeping and eating really bad food, not getting a chance to shower or brush your teeth. <laughs> teeth. I think there's other ways of doing it. You know, you know, and I think it's like, it's it's agile culture. It's like, oh, we'll just do a sprint. We'll do it for 48 hours and not sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that uh, aspect of hackathons. I think the getting together, sharing ideas, hacking on some things is very positive, but turning it into a competition that's judged uh, is definitely an aspect that ruins it for me. I think we want to avoid that. It's reality. You know, re reality shows are scripted. 
and they paid script writers for reality shows. So, and you don't get paid for hackathons unless you win the prize, which is usually like t-shirts from the sponsoring company. And literally, it's like, I, oh, here's the winner of the hackathon. Um, here, here, I'm going to give out this basket of shirts to them. It's like, they've been working for 48 hours. <laughs> well, I guess they need to change their clothes. But, you know, so, where's the bottle? Where's the bottle of hanger one? The, um, the, the city that I live in, is uh, essentially built on uh, um, the profits of the mining industry, mining, oil and gas. Uh, so Perth is very big mining, oil and gas town. And uh, some people that I know organized a hackathon for the mining industry. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, like why? Why would I give my time? Why would I give my time for free to this group of industries that are extremely wealthy, uh, you know, why would I give any of my time to that? But uh, I was swayed by the people who were organizing it uh, because I know and respect them. And this goes back to that sort of thing about leadership was that their objective for doing that was to demonstrate the talent that existed in this area and to keep some of the money from that industry locally for them to actually source and to have things developed locally. And it's definitely had some effect uh, in that direction in, in opening the eyes of that industry to some of the talent and opportunities that exist. But it was definitely very, very uh, confronting for me to go from that, like, hey, screw you, big industry, you're going to get nothing from me. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah. And we were talking about that earlier with respect to Facebook. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, Randall, we, we need to use Midnight Oil's Beds Are Burning as our outro music. Who's Randall? Uh, Russell. Russell. Hi. So, um, Russell, what are you going to learn in 2016? Oh, that's a great question. So for me, um, because I have gotten rid of one of my creative outlets, I have, of course, picked up a new creative outlet. Um, so my so my focus for 2016 is entirely cosplay, costumes, prop building, and bringing interesting high-tech effects to costumes and props because there's not a lot of that. Um, there's some, like, I don't know if you've seen, there's like these amazing mechanical wings that somebody um, created that have been going around the internet um, eh, kind of mid-December um, where they're big, huge mechanical wings and they're amazing. Um, but I want to be able to, like, I, I want to focus mostly on lighting, uh, lighting effects and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I am working on a couple of projects that will hopefully make it really easy for costume designers and prop makers to add really fancy lighting effects to their, um, to their costumes and props. So that is my goal for 2016. Are you going to be targeting primarily like comic book conventions, anime conventions, steampunk events, uh, sci-fi? Uh, all of it. Um, so for, for me personally, it's going to be comics. Um, so I have a goal for April to have a Nightwing costume um, because, well, ex-trapeze artist, I am currently learning a scrima. My parents are still alive, which is, you know, good. Um, 
but I really identify with, with Nightwing, um, and Dick Grayson just in general. Um, and so, uh, that's the first costume that I'm going to do hopefully for April for Emerald city comic-con. That's my goal. Um, so that gives me, you know, roughly about three months cause it's at the beginning of April, um, to build a costume and the props. Yeah. That brings up one other thing that I've learned over the last year, yeah, in the last, uh, last year to, you know, is, I learned a sense of style. I have a personal style now. That is an amazing thing to have developed. And it makes me and it makes me very happy because now people come up to me and go, Oh, Emma, this piece, it's totally you. You. So your friends do it. Uh, you go into Nordstrom and the clerk goes, Oh, wait a minute, Emma, come over here. I need to see this. And that's a one that, that's a fantastic thing. It's not good on one's wallet, but it's great to to have built that out. Wow, I totally agree. I'm still trying to find my style. <laughs> I have had the same style since high school, t-shirts and jeans. Uh, I'm in the same camp, I think. I, I went through a phase where uh, my hair would be a different color every week, um, and I quite enjoyed that. But these days I'm more interested in uh, fading into the background of a crowd than uh, otherwise. I still do wild colors in my hair. My hair is natural right now only because my sister's wedding is next month. I would be so embarrassed to talk about my previous hairstyles. Then go ahead. Uh, it, I had a phase a while back when, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> do you guys know like Japanese long men's hairstyle and they're kind of spiky and a gold blonde yeah that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's pretty yeah that was a phase some years ago <laughs> oh sort of the visual k thing like okay imagine goku in dragon ball <laughs> like that kind of hair yeah it's kind of scary thank god it's over <laughs> so things that um I want to learn for the coming year uh are around techie things um, uh, particularly around uh, doing a lot more work with um, Elixir, uh, which is this really interesting, um, highly concurrent uh, language built on top of the Erlang virtual machine. Um, and I've been doing a ton of work on that recently. And I'm so excited about being able to continue that into the coming year. I mean, it's just bonkers, the, the things that can be done uh, building on this technology that's been around for 20 years, Erlang, uh, which, you know, they solved problems that, you know, as web developers, uh, we are sort of fighting against now. And, and the people that built Erlang solved them 20 years ago. And, and we're only really coming to appreciate that now, uh, I think, because we're reaching the edges of what we can do with increasing processor speed. Uh, and and everything now is is going to be focused on making things that work concurrently, um, and alongside that, uh, there's a a new language that came out of Mozilla uh, called Rust, uh, which is a systems programming language, um, which aims to play in the in the space that C and C plus plus do, uh, but in ways that are super super interesting. Uh, in terms of memory safety uh, and and the patterns uh, around making um, these low-level uh, systems almost bare metal 
work in ways that ensure there's a whole class of really serious mistakes that you just cannot make. Uh, these are, are enforced at compile time, so there's no uh, runtime cost to that. Uh, and, and how they've brought in um, these really interesting ideas that have been sort of floating around in academia for a while but haven't been brought into a real system is is fascinating to watch how that has developed and how it's been developed in the open. Um, and, yeah, that that's something that I really, really uh, want to learn. There's some great talks about, you know, things that um, have been done by the, you know, a subset of the Ruby community, uh, for example. You know, there's this um, talk that um, Yehuda Katz, who, you know, uh, is influential in lots of circles, uh, talks about this really naive implementation that they made uh, in Rust of a C uh, extension for Ruby uh, and their naive first implementation that they thought they would need to work on was actually faster than the than the plain C uh, implementation uh, and and they used all the high level constructs in the language. It's a really really interesting talk. It was with um, Yehuda and uh, the guy's called Chan Can Code. I can't remember his full name, but that's who he is on on Twitter. Um, yeah, so uh, Elixir and Rust are going to be the things that, that I'm most interested in technically over the coming year. Like since coming from a designer background, I don't really know much about coding. So I'm just wondering, what is a good strategy for learning all these different languages? Like which one to pick first? Like how do you group them to learn? I mean, right now I have bookmarked all of these tutorials and like, there are so many languages and I want to learn all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really overwhelming and I can get lost really easily. So I'm just wondering if there are any tips that you have um, for a beginner and also how to not get lost in all of it. Um, so I would say that the best thing is have a project, pick the language that's appropriate for your project. So if you're writing an app or Objective-C, because I'm, I'm assuming I, iPhone app, but or Java if it's Android, um, and um, focus just on that one language. Um, and uh, complete your project, then pick another project, preferably in the same, like that would require the same language just to get you a little bit more experience. Um, and it's pretty much repeat that ad nauseum. Um, yeah, pretty much forever. Um, and then once you're comfortable with that language, pick a new language. Um, that's pretty much how we, uh, at least that's how I've always done it. Um, having a project is super important. I, and I would expand on that, um, that not just picking a new language after you've learned one, but uh, trying to explore a new paradigm uh, as well, because uh, every time I step into a different area of coding and then come back to an area that I'm familiar with, I find better ways of doing things that I did before. And I'd also say, like, you, you were talking about not getting lost. I love getting lost. Yeah. I love it. I learn I learn more when I get lost uh, and explore and have fun exploring uh, than I do in a structured way. But a lot of that's about your own individual learning style. But I definitely agree with Ross. Like, a project that is important to you will get you further than any book. Um. Learning the grain of a language or a framework is really important. And you will find as you're learning languages that there's a grain 
to them, that makes it very easy to work in that way. The problem with that is that even though a language has a, you know, has a grain you can work along with, it can cause you to do silly things. So be mindful of that. And when you find yourself in those patterns, I think that's a kind of ask a question about, uh, it's harder to ask a question when you're deep into a project to say, no, we're not going to write this in Ruby. We're going to write this in JavaScript because there's a whole other things, but you know, be aware, be aware of that when you feel like you're working against the brain, that's a point to, to ask questions because someone else has probably figured out a way to get, to get around that. And I just, you know, uh, that that's been that's been a valuable lesson for me because I, there's too many times I found myself in some really baroque code because I didn't understand the grain. And if you ask someone, they would point you in the right direction. Uh, direction. Uh, I am not opposed to saying that I'm going to you know, specialize in one language for a while. Don't feel like you have to go out. Um, you know, these days you can do a hell of a lot of JavaScript. I think the caveat about JavaScript these days is the proliferation of frameworks. Um, JavaScript, the language, the core language is getting better and more powerful. Stay with that. Don't necessarily be, you know, don't, don't let yourself be seduced by React and Angular. Uh, I mean, they have good reason. You know, they're, good, they're, they're very good and powerful frameworks for doing things, but if you're trying to learn development, or JavaScript is a good place to go still. Mm -hmm. uh, probably should another, you know, a whole other uh, segment on JavaScript. That would be a really good one to get our uh, on. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, any and any time anybody mentions Angular, then I almost lose teeth through grinding my jaws. Um, I've built things in Angular, um, and you know. I, I don't find it a pleasant experience, but um, I really like Ember uh, as a framework, um, and, and React has lots of super interesting and useful ideas, but I think sticking to the base of the language as you describe, as you're learning, uh, is great. There's some great resources out there um, for learning the fundamentals of JavaScript, particularly the um, You Don't Know JS series, uh, which is free, and it's on GitHub, and I will share the links for that as well. Um, I'd still like to hear what Emma was going to do for 2016. Oh, I had talked about that earlier in the show. I had talked about basically learning how to build influence. That's my goal. For next year. Uh, for my big goal for next year is figuring out how to build influence. Uh, and, you know, both at work and both on my side, you know, at, on, on policy issues. Is, is, that's, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Also, I want to make sure that we don't have to do so many point releases because that's embarrassing and makes people hate us. And my manager said that that's my job. Nice. All right. Well, show notes will be at lgbtq.m slash three. Thank you, everyone.